The following program is for informational and educational purposes only. This program does not replace medical, mental health, or psychological diagnosis and treatment prescribed by your personal physician, psychologist, therapist, or other health care provider. Please consult your provider for diagnosis and care before beginning or changing any program or idea discussed. Welcome to Psych Up Live with your host, Dr. Suzanne Phillips. This is the show that brings you a psychological perspective on common and current life issues. Here is Dr. Suzanne Phillips. Hi, and welcome to Psych Up Live. Thanks for joining me again. We're in an unimaginable situation as we globally face and fight COVID-19 pandemic. This show is dedicated today to the tireless frontline medical professionals who put themselves in harm's way to care for others and to mental health professionals who contain the fear, loss, and grief of so many. I've invited as my guests two of my colleagues from the American Group Psychotherapy Association, a nonprofit organization of 2,000 mental health professionals that, in addition to many other initiatives, provides intervention, consultation, and care in the aftermath of disasters, traumatic events, and now COVID pandemic. My guests are Dr. Molin Less, the president of the organization, and Dr. Craig Han, my co-chair of community outreach. They're going to discuss ways to support the resilience of medical and mental health professionals. Dr. Less is the president of the American Group Psychotherapy Association, and he draws upon years of hospital experience and research in the aftermath of the SARS epidemic. He served as psychiatrist-in-chief at Sinai Health System in the aftermath of SARS and vice chair for the Clinical Department of Psychiatry, University of Toronto, where he is professor of psychiatry. He is the co-author with Erwin Yalom of Theory and Practice of Group Psychotherapy, a very famous and important book, the sixth edition of which will come out this spring, 2020. He also co-authored Achieving Psychotherapy Effectiveness, and he's a distinguished fellow in the American Group Psychotherapy Association. Dr. Craig Han, co-chair of Community Outreach, has been working for over 20 years with individuals and communities impacted by developmental, familial, interpersonal, and mass trauma through his full-time private practice in White Plains and his work as a trainer, consultant, and supervisor. He is co-founder and training director of the Kent Institute in New York City, which offers a post-masters program both in arts and trauma treatment. He's adjunct faculty both at NYU and Lesley University and has published articles and books on trauma, gender, child and adolescent treatment, and group therapy. His most recent work is a special issue on international applications of the creative arts therapy with military service members and veterans. Dr. Molin Lesh and Dr. Craig Han, it is my privilege to welcome you both to Psych Up Live. Great to be with you, Suzanne. Thank you. Yes, sure. Um, Molin, let's start with you. You have been on the front lines dealing not only with hospital policy in the face of pandemics, but in particular directly with the needs of medical professionals. In terms of our medical professionals now facing a pandemic, what is most difficult for these heroic folks personally and professionally? 
Well, I, I think there are, uh, there are a number of ways uh, to look at this. And uh, what we uh, can do is look at the experience that hospital and healthcare workers have had with SARS, with the H1N1 pandemic, and now with COVID-19, which is uh, another order of intensity. And what we have seen is that there is uh, significant degrees of psychological stress, anxiety, uh, feelings of depression, sometimes feelings of uh, discouragement and demoralization. They can be quite acute. And we have also seen in a study of uh, healthcare workers during SARS that the effects can linger for a long period of time afterwards and take people out of clinical work. Uh, people get uh, uh, discouraged about the ability to deliver care and can disengage from health care. Right now with COVID-19, the intensity in the hot spots, and they are spread out across uh, North America, um, frontline workers, and I think it's also important to keep in mind that when we talk about frontline workers, we should also be including first responders, EMS workers, police, and other essential workers who expose themselves to COVID-19 through the necessity of their work. Mm-hmm. So what are the concerns of healthcare workers? They're concerned about, am I going to get sick? Am I going to bring this illness home to my family, to my kids, or to my older parents? Uh, do I have the resources to deliver care in the way that I need to deliver care? Do I have access to personal protective equipment? Can I do work in a way that honors my moral code and ethical values? Uh, an example is that uh, we have heard the metaphor of this is a war, and we hear from some frontline providers that uh, they are prepared to do battle. There's long been a history of self-sacrifice on the part of healthcare workers. But if they're going to use the metaphor of war, then these frontline workers want to know that they are properly armed and prepared for the battle and not sent into battle without uh, the necessary equipment. Mm. Uh, family members can put pressure on, on their loved ones to not go into work. And that's another layer of the kind of uh, moral pressure and ethical tension. How do you deliver care to all that required when you don't have enough uh, ventilators, uh, enough ICU beds, enough medication uh, to go around? So these are, these are things that make a very difficult situation even more challenging. Hmm. I, I'm remembering one description of a uh, young nurse from out east who said, there's two reasons we go. We go because of our team, and we go because of the patients. That's very much does sound like military responding. But that is not without fear. You know, we've heard them say we're scared, but we're here. And so mm-hmm. what, one of the things that a lot of your writing suggests that we want them to know that their reactions make sense, given the context of this situation. But we also are recognizing in terms of what you've said about um, safety and psychological safety is it can't just be them doing it alone. We have to have policies that support and protect them even as they are 
at times putting themselves in harm's way. Exactly. And uh, I think uh, a good way to think about it is to use that, the, the, that phrase that we hear about all the time, PPE, personal protective equipment. I think we also need to say and question, what is the psychological protective equipment? Okay. And we, we need both. We need to provide both for our health care providers. And the, the, the metaphor of, of battle is relevant insofar as if you're part of a high-performing team that feels well-equipped, your morale is going to be better and you're going to be more effective and you're going to be able to carry out your duties with a sense of, we're in this together, I'm well-trained, I'm well-skilled, I have the resources, I have the backup, the people who are making decisions have my back. Compare that to situations where people feel, I'm exposed, I don't have what I need to do my job. I'm not sure that I can trust people above me to make proper decisions. I've heard uh, uh, more than one time uh, from healthcare workers the comment that the military analogy falls short. What it does is that it takes away people's autonomy. It forces them to take orders. It makes them feel that there is a hierarchy of command and they have lost some of their autonomy. And that we know when you lose autonomy, uh, it is uh, something that increases vulnerability to psychological stress. So Very what important. Okay, so what type of interventions on a policy level on or on a personal level would you recommend to support the mental health and the psychological perspective and regulation of this stress for these medical workers? Well, uh, I'm, I'm glad to uh, respond to that question and can say that we have good evidence to support the, the recommendations that I'm going to suggest. Um, you know, a shorthand uh, is uh, a message from frontline workers that in essence says, hear us, pay attention to our distress, uh, listen to the things that are of concern to us. Uh, the second is care for us. Make sure we have what we need to do in order to be effective. Look after our needs. Uh, you see sometimes the community response is very important in that regard. Uh, healthcare workers are being lauded and praised and supported. They're being put up in hotels so that they don't have to add a long commute uh, to their long working day. A third dimension is prepare us. Make sure that we know what to do because there is robust evidence that when people are properly trained in how to respond to high-intensity situations, they manage much more effectively. Mm -hmm. The fourth dimension is protect us. Make sure that we are not put in harm's way. Make sure that when you are making decisions about redeployment, make sure that when you are making decisions about who is on the front line and who is not, that, that the decisions are made based upon organizational justice, that we know the principles that, make, that, that, that lead you to make these decisions, and we can respect them and abide from them, that, people are, that the healthcare workers are treated in a way that is fair and just. 
And the evidence is very robust that if you have an environment in which people feel supported, recognized, and valued, you have much higher engagement. If you have higher engagement, you have much better clinical care. And the last two dimensions are support us. Make sure that we feel valued and recognized. One unit that I uh, am aware of, I'm supporting some people who work in a unit, uh, the hospital uh, the foundation is not raising money right now, but what they've done is they have created packages of food to send to the healthcare workers and their families. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have created uh, jerseys and uh, T-shirts, uh, so everyone knows we're part of such and such an ICU team or such and such an ER mm. team. And those things uh, they add, they attribute meaning to experience, and we know from other studies of PTSD. If you can attribute meaning to experience, it helps people tolerate adversity. Mm-hmm. And the mm-hmm. last comment I would make is honor us. And, and, and so if, if we do all of the other five elements, hear us, care for us, prepare us, protect us, support us, then you'll honor us. And our sacrifice uh, will feel like it is more worthwhile and something that we can tolerate. Let's not forget that over 70 physicians in Italy have died from COVID-19. I believe 10 police officers in New York have died from COVID-19. So these are real life uh, threats, and we have not seen this before uh, with healthcare, uh, in, in certainly in North America. Mm-hmm. That's what makes it impressive about the courage to step up, but I really do love what you're saying. I think it has to make sense that when you think that there's integrity in terms of the the people in charge, the team can work safely, psychologically. I also think we talk about the group psychological first aid and your first comment about hear me. They, uh-huh. The paper, a, New York, a Long Island paper, um, Newsday, reported a group interview by a ER team of nurses who all gathered around, somewhat hugging each other, describing what made it difficult for them, how frightened they were, how those with babies had to hold their babies when they went home wearing masks. And the look on their faces made me think, this interview was therapeutic. They were being Uh recognized, they were being honored, and they were being heard. So that yeah. it's interesting that the press has played a part, as well as individual people and groups, in recognizing what's going on. And what you're saying is that the documentation shows this really supports resilience. Absolutely. And I, I would add to, to, uh, to this the importance of social integration, social connection. That is one of the protective elements We know that when communities are traumatized, keeping the community together, helping the community to feel effective is the most important psychological intervention that you can do. And social integration becomes more challenging. Social support becomes more challenging when people are wearing uh, face masks and shields and gloves and they can't be within two meters or six feet of one another. And And even though there's a great outflow of support and care, there is stigma. Uh, A a doctor uh, wrote in one of our newspapers that he works in the ER, and when he saw what was happening, he and his wife 
revised their wills. And they emailed some of their neighbors and asked if they could bring over the will which needed to be witnessed. And they did not get anyone who said they were willing to come over or have them come over and sign the document. Mm. So there are issues. There are issues still of stigma, even though it is much less uh, than uh, it, it, it is in other situations. And your, your comment, Suzanne, about the role of media is critically important because, because how the story gets told uh, makes, a world, uh, makes a world of difference. Mm. You cannot underestimate the value of actions that boost and maintain morale when our colleagues are worked to the point of exhaustion and feel like they're making terribly difficult ethical decisions several times a day. One physician said he's seen more death in the last two weeks than he has in the last five years. Mm-hmm. There, there was one other um, article where an ICU unit, they, someone set up a camera, Mullen, where they could go and comment. And one nurse went over and said, so I've been... I should be crying. It's been such a hard day. But one of a one of our um, team has been telling jokes all day. She knew we've had a very hard time because we lost a young person, and we needed yeah. her to do it. But it struck me that her talking into that microphone is what we call bearing witness. And yeah. it it as you're saying with the, the press doing it with people bringing over food, that's unbelievably important in terms of supporting psychological health. Absolutely. So some, some hospitals have developed a kind of buddy system where everyone who works in the hospital, from cleaning staff to senior administration, has somebody uh, who contacts them every day. How are you doing? How's it going? I got your back. We need to feel that we belong and that, uh, that people care for us. That's, uh, that's part of what helps us manage uh, the feelings of grief and loss, and uh, creates a bit more reflective space so we're not in a highly reactive mode. We always make better decisions when we have a moment uh, to reflect. We're going to have to take a break. A break at the yeah. moment. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Psych Up Live. We're here with Drs. Molin Less, the president of the American Group Psychotherapy Association, and Dr. Craig Han, who's the co-chair of Community Outreach. We're talking about supporting the resilience of both our medical and mental health professionals and the teams that support them. Stay with us. Much more to come. A brave heart is anyone with the courage to be of service to others. If you have that courage, then Bravehearts Radio with Brian Reinbold is for you. Even if you aren't yet, you'll want to still tune in to get inspired, create your own story to share, and change your life for the better. Listen to the stories of service and courage shared by amazing guests and your input too. Listen for Bravehearts Radio Mondays at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Remember, doing good anywhere does good everywhere. There are many innocent people who are found guilty of crimes that they did not commit. Join criminal defense investigator Jeff Stein for Is There Really Truth and Justice for All? 
Each show, we'll discuss the problem, and it is a problem. The fact that because of incompetent investigations and a poor judicial system, anybody can become a victim. Can we fix this? Tune in to find out. You can listen Wednesdays at 11 a.m. Eastern Time and 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Want an insider's pass to everything that goes on in Hollywood? Join Summer Helene every week for Behind the Scenes. Summer Helene is known as the Duchess of Hollywood because she knows the insiders, legends, and celebs and brings the stories, the gossip, and the backstage scoop. It's the real Hollywood, though. So this program is for adults only. Behind the Scenes can be heard live every Friday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time and 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you ever experienced the joy of living? Not just aspects of your life, but the true joy of life itself. Barry Shore has. You could call him an ambassador of joy. From a successful entrepreneur to becoming a quadriplegic due to a rare disease to his ongoing recovery through swimming and physical rehabilitation. Barry now presents his gifts to others as host of The Joy of Living. All you need to do is tune in. Listen live every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now, back to Psych Up Live. Welcome back to Psych Up Live. We're speak, speaking with Dr. Molin Less and Dr. Craig Han. They're both from the American Group Psychotherapy Association. Um, let's talk, Craig, about the situation we're in now. Now, I know that you have responded with the American Group Psychotherapy Association to hurricanes, 9-11, school shootings. Craig, how is this different in terms of our mental health professionals? Well, it's an interesting question. I'm in Westchester County, New York, where one of the original epicenters of COVID was in the tri-state area. And I hear my colleagues all of the time comparing it to their experiences of 9-11. And in some ways, things are similar. But I think the landscape of how people are suffering is really different right now. I heard David Knott, a trauma surgeon from the UK, in an interview with Terry Gross saying that COVID has created a disaster zone for the whole world. Um, so that now, whether they wanted to or not, most mental health professionals are all dealing with trauma in their patients, but it's more of a suspended sense of shock and an ongoing hypervigilance with a lot of ambiguity and questions. Mm-hmm. When will this end? When will I get sick? Can I trust the information that's coming at me? And, you know, we talk all the time about treating trauma, and we refer to it as post-traumatic reactions, but there's no post yet. We're in the middle of it, right? And so there's a real sense of helplessness and hyperarousal, and clinicians are doing just a lot of holding right now. And sometimes that holding includes knowledge of things that their patients themselves are not able to hold, are not able to take in because it's too scary. A colleague of mine that I was talking to was talking about how sad he ends up feeling with his youngest 
child patients because he's aware that by the end of this, some of them will be facing loss of people they love, perhaps. And that's not something that they are able to take in just yet or entertain the possibility of. And so I think in many ways, this idea of bearing witness and how important it is, is also such a challenge and a burden because we're bearing witness to um, something that we previously, just, you know, six weeks ago, couldn't have even imagined. And the and the overwhelmed feeling and the the constant focus on the media or if the media is on constantly in a home, there's a constant barrage of all of it so that it's even very hard for us to invite our patients to just consider what they're feeling that day or what they've heard that day. So, I mean, you're right in terms of it's inescapable, but it becomes too big to handle psychologically. Absolutely. And I think for many of our patients, even the question of what day is it uh, is a challenging one, right? Um, You know, so many of my patients are struggling with just establishing the basic routines that will remind their bodies and brains of where they're at. And I think it's important to say as we're talking about frontline medical folks that when we're talking about mental health professionals, we're really speaking of two groups. There's one group that has had the entire landscape of how they do their work that's changed because they've had to convert to health telehealth and all of the uh, difficulties of holding and connecting with patients in that medium. But I think it's important to remember that we still have a tremendous number of mental health professionals who are on the front lines, who are still going into their place of work, either because they work in a hospital setting or because they are working with a patient population that is um, acute or perhaps hospitalized or lives in a residential. And I Mm -hmm. think for that second group of folks, they're facing um, sort of the burden of, um, I'm thinking of Mullen's use of the war metaphor earlier, something surge in, um, soldiers face is this sense of there being two worlds, the world of combat and the world that everyone else lives in, mm-hmm. and um, bearing witness to that. I heard one therapist who works in a hospital talk about what it was like to be on the inpatient psychiatric unit doing that work and knowing on the floor above them there was an emergency room where people were dying. And mm-hmm. that sort of um, combination of feelings, both feeling fortunate to not be sitting with that, but also feeling quite helpless, you know, knowing that there were people above them who were doing a different kind of work. And so there's a lot of holding and regulating and, um, and, and trying to bear witness to something that we're, we're not quite sure what it is yet. I like your idea about two worlds. I do think it applies to both medical and the mental health. And that is if you are working either frontline as a mental health professional or hour after hour dealing with, you know, the worried well, that is people who are now calling because something horrific is happening or patients whose depression or anxiety has become escalated or people who simply are having a hard time functioning, if you're doing that hour after hour, as many of us are, then turning back to regular life becomes far more difficult and a much bigger strain, Craig. So that's where the self-care and the question of we're not only trying to help our patients regulate and our the people in our groups regulate, the question is how do we as mental health professionals regulate? Yes, 
Well, because I think, you know, now mental health professionals, a lot of my colleagues are describing that the space of session with their patients in some ways is a reprieve because they get to focus in on that one person for that time being instead of the barrage of items coming in from what's going on in the world. And so it becomes more difficult to then shut it off or leave it behind when you leave the office because you're walking out into a world that still feels quite frightening and all of your own feelings of fear that you may have kept at bay in order to be there for your patients come rushing in. And so there's this ongoing state of hyperarousal that I think clinicians might be feeling. And also, you know, the, the urge to want to be able to reassure and do something and knowing that the best we can do is let our patients know right now um, that what they're feeling is real, right? And, um, and that it is frightening and we don't know what's around the corner. There is a myth, I think, perhaps around self-regulation, that self-regulation is about being able to turn off difficult feelings, when in fact, what self-regulation is really uh, about is the capacity to feel your feelings fully, but also not lose yourself in the process and be Mm -hmm. able to feel those feelings and reflect on them and think them through. And, you know, similarly, I would say we talk about self-care in terms of discrete practices, go for a walk, you know, um, move your body, and all of those things, do yoga. All of those things are really important, but I think self-care really begins with the way we begin to see ourselves in the world and in the work. Um, I have a colleague who said to me yesterday that she was doing okay because she had surrendered to the unpredictability. And once she was able to surrender to it, she found actually that it could be a space of creativity. But it, it took it, you know, it's that paradoxical analogy. If you remember the toys we played with as kids that were finger cuffs and you Mm -hmm. put your fingers together in them and the harder you tried to pull them apart, the more they stuck. You know, there is (laughs) this counterintuitive thing that happens that the more we surrender to it, um, the easier it is to then then be able to negotiate it and manage it. You know, I think one theme that fits right into that is the grieving, Craig, in terms of ambiguous loss. People will talk about, I I don't believe I'm not going to see my grandson graduate, or someone makes the prestigious college and they don't know if they're going, or someone's wedding has been postponed, or someone had the final retirement trip to Hawaii, and that's going to happen. And it may seem small to people in the face of death and war, as we're talking about it, but to those people, there is a grieving for the life they thought they had or what they expected. And I think that's what I'm seeing a lot with people. I think, is that something you're also working to make space with with your patients? Yes, I think we're in an ongoing state of loss, and I think that applies equally to mental health professionals. You know, the loss of um, the the things that uh, organized our day. I, I would also say that for a lot of my patients, uh, in addition to all of those events that you mentioned, I treat a lot of adolescents, right? It's my senior year, and I had always imagined my senior year right. would be marked by prom and, and this event that seniors get to do and that recognition 
notion that this is not how I will remember the end of my senior year. Um, and I think, I think for clinicians too, you know, holding that and there, there really is no answer to that. Um, and I think that's challenging, right? To just be there in the feelings. The other loss I'd like to mention, um, that I think is significant is, is the loss of touch, right? Um, Mullen talked earlier about, um, the, the separation that p- professionals are experiencing from one another. And, you know, many patients that I treat live alone. And so they are in a position right now where they're realizing how much they miss just the simple being touched on the shoulder or the handshake or the hug that they receive from people out in the world. Mm-hmm, for sure. Now, one of the things, the three of us are from the American Group Psychotherapy Association, and, and I invite Mullen to join us here at this point, so Craig, where does the role of group come in? Because we can't meet as a group. So how can group or connection, we've always said people healing group. Tell me how mental health workers and their patients, as well as medical line workers, can make use of this. Yeah, I mean, I think I think one of the beauties of technology is has, it has cleared some space and made it a little more immediate and accessible, um, where people might say, "Ah, oh, I've worked a twelve-hour shift, right? There's no way I'm going to a therapy group." Um, it is something to be able to sit down in front of one's computer when one gets home and be able to connect into people. It is a different mm-hmm. sort of connection. Um, Some of what you and I have been doing, Suzanne, is providing some webinars for our colleagues that are about care for the caregiver. And I think those webinars have a couple values. One is that we remind people of things that they already know. And the nature of trauma in times like this is we forget the things we already know. Um, It happened after 9-11. You know, we all felt de-skilled and we need some reminders both about how we do the work, but also how we take care of ourselves. And then groups provide things that are so basic, but so fundamental. Trauma is built on isolation. It is built on the sense that my feelings and what I experience are um, unique to me, and that invites a lot of embarrassment and shame. And so I think we find when we connect with our colleagues, they're very eager just to be heard and to hear somebody else articulate an experience that they can say, oh, my gosh, you had that too? Oh, that happened to me the other day. I thought I was the only one. And, of course, on some gut level, therapists know they're not the only one, but it is so easy to lose our way when we are in this state of shared trauma where we are experiencing what our patients are experiencing in real time. Mm, it's so true because we say in a, in a state of trauma, even though we've all been hit by the same boulder, everyone for a minute thinks they're completely isolated. So I, it's so important. Marlon, did you want to um, comment about the value of groups? I, I certainly agree with everything uh, that we've been talking about so far. And there are groups in the formal sense, and although it's hard right now to have groups in the, in the traditional sense of face-to-face, uh, there's a lot of group work that is going on online, as Craig has mentioned. But I also want to speak to the value of groupness and group interventions at the, at the local level. Uh, many units in the ER, the ICU, will have a huddle at the beginning of a shift. 
five, ten minutes, everyone comes together dressed in their personal protective equipment and say, look, this is what we are facing, this is what we expect, uh, do we have all the equipment, are we ready for it? What I would say is that you could also use that huddle as a psychological huddle. And here, uh, kind of the, the facilitator or the team leader or uh, kind of the, the workshop foreman, so to speak, can be a champion of a healthier group process. Create an opportunity for the group to feel a sense of calm. We're here together. Remind people of the, the efficacy of the team, of the individuals. We are a high-performing team. We know what to do. We, can, we have each other's back. Create a sense of safety. Promote a sense of connectedness uh, through the, that five or ten minutes uh, uh, get-together get in the huddle. And where possible, try to stimulate uh, realistic hope. Uh, but we're going to manage this. We've managed through adversity before. So uh, I agree with everything that you have said about we lose our skills for coping when we get overwhelmed. And sometimes what we need to do is just make something that was implicit to us before explicit so we can draw on it when we're, we're psychically on fire. Mm-hmm. So groups at, at the kind of the, the, the more traditional level, the online level, and groups for five or ten minutes at the beginning of the shift or at the end of the shift. Great. And, well, Craig, we've seen on our, and all of us have seen on our listserv, uh, weekly groups that people are dropping in on, mental health workers, and perhaps it's true with med- mental health workers who are working in medical facilities where they're trying to get a kind of informal groupness and support on a weekly basis. Yes. And, and, and even group dance parties online, which uh, I have enjoyed seeing, right? We, we can unite and talk about how difficult this is, but we can unite around experiences that bring vitality and joy as well and, and feel connected in that vitality and joy, um, which can be a really beautiful thing. I was also thinking um, uh, that in terms of our medical professionals, one of the things I have heard that becomes the value of that team from doctors is when you are faced with a difficult ethical decision in which you know it is about somebody's mortality, that knowing that you can sometimes make that decision in consultation with colleagues so that mm-hmm. it becomes a shared decision um, means that you don't then also bear the weight of that decision in solo. You know that you have folks who have been with that with you through that difficult process. And I think for mental health professionals, it's the same, you know, knowing that not that you're making clinical decisions together, but knowing that you are with colleagues who can share with you just the burden of holding or, or how valuable it was for some of us in the beginning, just to have somebody else say, are you as exhausted as I am? Yes, I'm exhausted every day and I'm trying to get through that. And it was so heartening, um, for colleagues to be able to share those experiences with one another. Mm-hmm. It's, it seems that whether it's formal or informal, the fact of connection, as you're both saying, and maybe we should un- expand this to families, however people did the holidays, it meant connecting. And most people reported it made it a difference, even if they were doing a pass over through Zoom or an Easter dinner through Zoom, 
if we ever were critical of social media before, we need it now more than ever because it affords the very thing that we're talking about, the formal or the informal grouping. We're going to have to take a brief break and then we're going to come right back to speak about the risks of caring and how we deal with it. You've been listening to Psych Up Live. I'm here with Dr. Molin Less, the president of the American Group Psychotherapy Association, and Dr. Craig Han, the co-chair of community outreach. They're responding to the needs of medical and mental health professionals. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts. We'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Live Fridays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Moving forward can be difficult to do sometimes. There is always something going on. Many times, nobody else knows exactly what you're going through. If you are experiencing pain or loss, even something unexplained that is missing in your life, you'll want to tune into Go For It with host Joe Hausman. Joe and her guests will show you laughter and love. Sometimes you just need something a little positive in your week. Make that spot Thursday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Join five-time world and international boxing champion, mental health advocate, writer, and speaker, Mia St. John, for In the Ring with Mia. After losing her ex-husband and son to mental illness, Mia has set out to empower those who deal with mental illness, homelessness, poverty, and addiction. Tune in and join Mia in the ring. And together, you'll find the help and motivation that you need. Listen live every Monday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time and 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now, back to Psych Up Live. Welcome back to Psych Up Live. We're here with Dr. Mullen Les and Dr. Craig Han, and we we're going to touch on a difficult topic because it touches upon moral injury. And I've heard from patients, and certainly it's something that we've heard medical 
and mental health professionals talk about, and that is the strain and upset about the thought of patients dying alone without family members. And I wanted to ask both of you, how how do our medical professionals handle this? How do our mental health professionals handle this? There's often a moral injury that's felt by it. What do you folks think? I think it's really important that we support one another uh, in these these complex ethical and moral dilemmas. Uh, no one should be making decisions entirely by themselves. I think there's value in, in the team helping with these difficult decisions. And reminding ourselves of the moral purpose of the work that we do is another protection against some of the, the moral injury. We all have a set of code, uh, a code of ethics, of values, and we we injure ourselves morally when we behave in ways that are counter to that code, whether we choose it, whether we do it by mistake, or whether we're forced to do it. So the more we're able to align our behavior with our values, the more we protect ourselves from moral injury, and likely the more we are able to be present in the caregiving in the way that's required so we can honor uh, the, the dignity of a person's life and, sadly, the dignity of a person's death as much as possible. I had mentioned at the break that I had read of a Dr. Jones who was the head of a residency program who sent an email to his residents that said, I want you to remember to hold the hand of someone who's dying. And when the time comes for that person to die, I want you to take a minute to be silent for someone to say that person's name and for you to bow your heads. And he said, I'm doing this not only for the dignity of that patient and what we can tell the family that that person died with dignity, but I'm doing it to support your humanity and just what you're saying, Molin, your sense of moral integrity. Absolutely. Go ahead, Craig. Well, you know, your story takes me back to some of my um, first work after September 11th. I was on-site mental health uh, person at Ground Zero for the anniversaries, and I remember walking out onto the site um, with a team of mental health professionals, and, and this was all new for all of us. And the first person we encountered was a young woman who was on the ground who was crying and crying, and everybody was reluctant to approach her. And I sort of gathered my courage and asked her if it was okay if I sat next to her and, and, and then just sat with her and breathed for a few minutes. And then I asked her who she lost, and she told me it had been her dad. And I said, can you share his name? And I learned so much from her response because when she said his name, she looked me right in the eyes, and there was a pride, but there was also a little bit of defiance. And, and, you know, I saw the way in which that name was so important and powerful. It was like his humanity was there. And when we talk about moral injury, there's a trickle-down effect, right? When, When people aren't cared for, and protected from the very top, then they also are in a lesser position to protect others. And I think, you know, medical professionals and mental health professionals have such a capacity to provide a shelter or haven for folks, even if just for a few minutes, and to not um, undervalue 
how much those few minutes of being a shelter or haven for someone can mean in the grand scheme of what we're facing. It fits so much with the work that I've done with military in terms of moral injury and the moral injury they carry if they've witnessed the person above them doing something they know is really not so acceptable. It's in the context Mm -hmm. sometimes of life and death. It's in the context of following orders, but it's something they cannot integrate as they come home. Mm -hmm. And so I think that, you know, what you're saying really makes so much sense. And the position of being in charge of mental health professionals or medical professionals is one that certainly we don't take lightly, but moral injury is certainly something we want to spare everyone from. Mullen, you did want to speak about wanting people to know we won't be in this place forever. Right, right. Just before I comment about that, Suzanne, I wanted to just build on Craig's, uh, Craig's, uh, Craig's illustration because in providing comfort for this young woman, I suspect, Craig, you may have felt uh, heartened or even emotionally, psychologically elevated by your capacity to be there with that person in that kind of way, which was exactly what she needed at that moment. And we can talk about moral injury. We can also talk about moral purpose. And part of how we cope, I think, is by linking to that moral purpose, uh, seeking to elevate rather than to degrade And we want to be part of a team, we want to be part of an organization, we want to be part of a hospital, we want to be part of an institution that operationalizes those values. And if you do that at the the organizational level, you are creating a more protective environment for your people, for the people Mm -hmm. who work there, and they will provide better care as a result. So I I, I wanted to make that comment because I felt it was uh, so... So, so moved, uh, Craig, by your story. And sometimes the simplest things right. are the most humane things, and they add enormous value. You can spend thousands and thousands of dollars a day in providing health care, but sometimes holding a patient's hand for five minutes uh, is as valuable as anything else. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Absolutely. So, let me give each of you a a, a chance to do a quick take-home message to our listeners. Would you like to start, Mullen? Sure. I think that be sure that you stay connected. Be sure that you stay psychologically protected as well as physically protected. And recognize that we are going through a terrible time now. Very great adversity. And People are going to, unfortunately, die, and people are going to become ill, and people are going to become psychologically damaged because of this. But there's a counterpoint, which is that we as a society, as organizations, as institutions, we also have the opportunity to not only be resilient and bounce back to where we were before, but we should aim to be better after that we need to learn from this so that the things that are of most value are, in fact, treated as uh, they are of most value rather than fall to the wayside. Mm. So I'm hopeful, I'm hopeful that we as a society will learn things from this that put us into a better position in the future. 
and extract some value from this awful time. Thank you. Craig? Yeah, that, that's beautiful, Mullen. I, I find myself uh, um, having to remind my patients and my colleagues a lot that this moment in time won't last forever and that um, there will be a time when we will move past it. And in some ways, perhaps there will be a paradoxical effect in that we will return to some things that we've left by the wayside as a culture and society that are about human connection and the value of human connection. But perhaps we will also find some new and better tools for the way we navigate the world. And I think my message for the listeners is really quite simple. I mean, I, I find that you know, in the enormity of trauma that we face as professionals in doing this work, what we have to keep reminding ourselves is this. You are enough. You've been trained for this the way you've been trained to be present, to listen, to, um, to provide care, uh, to make decisions. Um, you are enough in that. And, and I think, especially, too, if we have parents listening um, who are really feeling very helpless in terms of how they be with their kids during this or what they say to them or, or how they provide comfort, that you are enough, too. Um, there's a reason you became a parent. And I think as, as soon as we recognize that we're enough, then we can do our, our, our best work. Lovely. Terrific. I want to thank both of you for coming on the show as my colleagues. I'm honored that you joined me, and I'm so um, grateful for the opportunity to have our listeners know about the American Group Psychotherapy Association, which is agpa.org. Many, many resources for the, the COVID pandemic and other types of trauma and of course you can also find out more about Dr. Mullen Less and Dr. Craig Han. I want to once more thank our mental health and our medical health workers and all the teams that support them from um, those people who show up to make sure that things are clean or that certain stations are changed. Every Everyone who's part of this we want to thank you for your courage to step up for the rest of us. I want to thank my listeners. And remember, you can hear this and any prior show as a podcast on my host site, Eastern Time by 6 p.m. tonight. It'll also be a podcast on your iPhones, on iTunes, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Play. Even Alexa can get you to hear this. Please drop me a comment or a question at radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Mostly until next week, please be safe. Thanks and be listening. Thank you for tuning in to Psych Up Live. Please join Dr. Suzanne Phillips for another edition of our programming next Thursday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until then, be well and be listening.